0: So I want to start by clarifying something I said in the discussion last week. Woody had asked a question um, that was a good question uh, about, you know, where are we in this and who's king and what's going on? So as you know, the Babylonian Empire had its capital in Babylon. But when the Medes and Persians conquered Babylon under Cyrus the Great, the seat of power shifted eastward. Cyrus himself actually had four different capital cities. Babylon was one of them, but the others were Susa in Persia, Ekbatana in Medea, and Persepolis, which was his primary capital and was um, somewhat further east in Persia. And the Persian rulers Thereafter move between these four cities. So don't let that confuse you. You will find Persian rulers in the Bible in Babylon and in Susa and um, later uh, when we're doing the Apocrypha at Batana will pop up. So just know that this is all we're all this is all Persia at this point. So um, that's that was my clarification. I want to also take a moment to get our bearings inside the Persian Empire. A couple of weeks ago, Zerubbabel and Joshua finished rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. That was around 516 BCE, under the rule of Darius the Great. And then last week, we did the story of Esther, Mordecai, and King Xerxes. And as we pick the story up this week, King Xerxes has died, and his son, Artaxerxes, has come to the throne in Persia. It's now about 458 BCE. The temple has been complete for about 60 years, and Ezra finally shows up in his own story. At the beginning of Ezra chapter 7, we discover that Ezra lives in Babylon. He's a priest descended from the line of Zadok, the warrior priest under David, whose devotion to Yahweh has proven true over the years. This this whole line of priests descending from Zadok are, are special. In fact, the very name Zadok means righteousness and justice. And through Zadok, Ezra can trace his lineage all the way back to Aaron. And he himself is not your average priest. Ezra is renowned as a scholar and an expert in the law of Moses, but he also has a gift for teaching God's word in an understandable way. We don't really get any backstory on Ezra other than this. All we can tell is that he's well-respected by King Artaxerxes, who trusts him implicitly. And apparently, Ezra has been teaching King Artaxerxes about how powerful Yahweh is. And I'm I'm reading between the lines here, but it appears that in the 60 years since Zerubbabel's temple has been finished, the Israelites have run amok. So King Artaxerxes sends Ezra to teach them the ways of Yahweh and get them back in line with the law of Moses. The king gives Ezra a letter of authorization, a huge amount of silver and gold, as well as instructions for the various treasurers of the trans-Euphrates region, which is where Palestine is, to provide as much silver and wheat and wine and oil and salt as Ezra could possibly need. And the government treasurers are not to tax any priests. Levites, musicians, or anyone else working in the temple. Ezra himself is to set up a legal system to administer justice to all the people living in the trans-Euphrates region. He's to appoint judges and magistrates and then teach everyone about the law of Moses. And he's authorized to use any punishment up to and including death. Um, however he sees fit for those who rebel against the law. And so Ezra gathers nearly 1500 people from Babylon to take back with him. With a little work and scrounging around, he's able to ensure there's a good representation of priests, Levites, temple servants, and others. And he stages his little caravan near one of the canals there in Babylon. And he splits up all the gold and silver the king has given him among 12 of the priests for safekeeping on the journey. It's a huge amount of wealth, and Ezra is really, really nervous about bandits. It may not look like much on this map, but the distance from Babylon to Jerusalem along that arc of the Fertile Crescent takes many months to travel. It's a trade route. So everyone is carrying either money or goods, and no one is safe from attack by bandits. In fact, most merchants travel in heavily guarded caravans. But Ezra has been telling King Artaxerxes that the Lord's hand is on anyone who seeks him, and the Lord's power and anger come against any who forsake him. So Ezra is ashamed to ask the king for an armed guard for the trip. It's important that Ezra count on the Lord alone to protect his little caravan of priests and temple workers so this Persian king can see the greatness of Yahweh. Now, we know from experience that this is when Yahweh typically shows up with miracles and Ezra for sure needs a miracle right right now. So before they leave, Ezra tells all the people to fast and to humbly ask God for a safe journey. And thus it is that after fasting and praying, they leave Babylon and head for Jerusalem. And the Lord does protect them. They reach Jerusalem safely after five months of travel. And in all that time, they are not attacked by thieves or bandits. Everything brought from Babylon is accounted for and delivered safely into the hands of the priests at the temple in Jerusalem. The orders from King Artaxerxes are delivered to the various local treasurers and governors of the Trans-Euphrates region, and all the exiles gather at the temple to offer sacrifices in praise to God. Then Ezra gets down to business. He meets with the leaders in Jerusalem, and they tell him things are in terrible shape. The Israelites have intermarried with the local people who worship all of the detestable idols. They have brought idolatry back into their very families. It's as if they have completely forgotten that they belong to Yahweh. It's as if they have forgotten their history. Ezra is thunderstruck. He is horrified. He cannot believe they have fallen so far from God so quickly. He tears his clothes and pulls hair from his head and his beard. And all those who remember God gather around him. They know what a big deal it is to intermarry and allow idol worship. They know Israel is in big trouble. Finally, when the time for the evening sacrifice arrives, Ezra falls on his knees before God and prays, I am too ashamed to even lift my face to you, Lord. For our sins are heaped up higher than our heads, and our guilt has reached your ears. Our ancestors sinned and were taken into captivity by our enemies. Yet you, have been so gracious to us, Lord. You spared a small remnant. You did not forsake us. You have softened the hearts of kings and allowed us to rebuild your temple. You have protected us when we were in danger. But now, God, what words can I say? We have polluted your land again. We have, ful- we have filled it with detestable practices again. You warned us not to intermarry so we would not fall into idolatry. And yet we have broken your wise commands. You have every right to destroy us and leave no remnant at all. We stand before you guilty. No, our guilt is so great, we cannot even stand. As Ezra weeps and prays, a large crowd gathers around him. The Holy Spirit pierces their hearts and everyone weeps bitterly. Then one of the men, Shechaniah, says to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to Yahweh, but there is still hope. We will send away our foreign wives and children. We will live according to the law. And so it is decided. All of the priests and Levites and all the Israelites make a solemn oath before the Lord. A a proclamation is sent out summoning all the Israelites throughout Judah and Jerusalem to gather in Jerusalem in three days time. Anyone failing to come will have their property confiscated and will be expelled from the community. Three days later, despite pouring rain, everyone gathers in the square in front of the temple. Ezra stands and says, you have been unfaithful to Yahweh. You have married foreign women and have heaped guilt on Israel Now honor the Lord your God, set yourselves apart from those who do not worship Yahweh, even if they are your wives. And the people reply, we will do this, but it is rainy season and this is complicated and it will take time. We cannot do this in one day. Let everyone who has married a foreign wife come before the judges and elders in his town, so we may settle this in an orderly way, case by case. This seems like a wise plan, and so everyone returns to their villages. Now, I find this a very human story with details about the pouring rain and the pushback from the people and Ezra realizing this is not a simple draw, a line in the sand sort of exercise, There is room here for justice to be administered case by case with thoughtfulness and care. So the questions in the study guide today have this important scene in mind. Ezra and the heads of each family division go through each case one by one over a period of three months. But as you can imagine, things do not go smoothly the tug toward idol worship and towards wanting to be like all the other people around them does not go away. Idols and idol worshipers are still physically present in Israel. This is a fact of life. Trying to eradicate idol worship from the Israelite community, faith community, requires personal commitment. It's not as simple as having your foreign wives and children move out. They still live in the community, and I suspect the men are still needing to support them economically. It is a very painful situation. Well, another 10 or 12 years pass. We're now in late 445 BCE. Artaxerxes is still king in Persia, and he's still in residence in the great city of Susa, east of Babylon. It is here that we're introduced to the king's wine taster, a Jewish man named Nehemiah. Should someone try to poison the king, Nehemiah will die instead. He serves the king closely at every meal. And over time, the king and queen have come to know and appreciate Nehemiah. Well, Nehemiah's brother Hanani and some other men have just arrived in Susa from Jerusalem. And Nehemiah is eager to hear how the Israelites are and how Jerusalem itself is doing. And he's terribly distressed when he hears that the people have again fallen into wickedness and are scorned and despised by the surrounding people. Furthermore, they rebuilt the temple But they have made no serious effort to rebuild the city itself. Apart from the temple, Jerusalem is nothing but rubble, and no one lives there. Nehemiah weeps and fasts and prays for several days, asking the Lord for mercy and confessing the sins of himself, his family, and all the Israelites. He calls on the Lord to remember his promises, to gather his people, and to dwell with them. And then Nehemiah prays for courage to face the king, for he knows what he must do. About three months later, Nehemiah allows his deep sadness to show in his face as he serves the king and queen. The king, of course, asks him, what is troubling him? Nehemiah quickly says a silent prayer and answers, how can I be otherwise but sad when the city of my ancestors, the place where they are buried, is burned and lying in rubble? And the king asks, what do you want from me? And Nehemiah, no doubt trembling in his shoes, Asks for the king to send him to, to to Jerusalem, along with building supplies, protection, letters of safe conduct to the governors of the Trans Euphrates region, so he can build rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And King Artaxerxes grants his request. What a miracle! And so Nehemiah and the troops sent to protect him. Set out for Jerusalem. He delivers the king's letters to the local Trans-Euphrates officials, but they are not at all happy with this. Two especially dig in their heels. San Balat, the governor of Samaria, which is the town, the town and region just north of Jerusalem, and Tobiah, who is an Ammonite, probably governor of the region just across the Jordan River from Jerusalem, the region, the, the, what used to be the kingdom of Ammon? So they see Nehemiah as horning in on their territory, and they aren't going to stand for it. Nehemiah pretty much ignores them. We don't know for sure, but this is probably when the letter back in Ezra 4 is written. a a group of politicians get together and write a letter to King Artaxerxes saying, you should know that the people who came here from you are rebuilding that rebellious city, Jerusalem, and you should know that if they're allowed to finish fortifying the city, they will stop paying you tribute. We're just looking out for your best interests, O king. And we hope that you will order a search of the archives to see how dangerous and rebellious this city is. But time works in Nehemiah's favor. It will take months for the letter from the politicians to reach the king, and more months for the search of the archives and for the king's reply to reach Jerusalem. So in the meantime, Nehemiah continues to forge ahead. He needs to know what he's up against here without any local interference. So he goes out at night with only a few trusted men and rides the perimeter of Jerusalem, looking at the terrible state of the walls. There's some places he can't even pass. The rubble is so bad. Nehemiah is a powerful personality, a true leader and an inspiring speaker. When he exhorts the Israelites to build up the wall of their ancestral city, the whole community throws themselves into the effort. Each family unit is assigned a portion of the walls to rebuild. This picture that's on the slide is a little optimistic. The walls are like in heaps of rubble, and it will take weeks to rebuild it just to waist high, even with every family working diligently. Families living near the city rebuild the portions across from their homes. Other families from farther away in Judah are assigned portions according to their capability. It is a remarkable effort. One man rebuilds his section with the help of his daughters. Sanballat of Samaria, Tobiah of Ammon, and a powerful Arab named Geshem mock the effort and do everything they can to break the morale of the people, even accusing them of treachery against King Artaxerxes. But Nehemiah stands up to them saying, God himself will make this happen. We will do this rebuilding, but you be gone. You have no part in this and no rights here. But in his heart, Nehemiah anguishes over their insults, and he prays that God will turn these men's insults back on themselves. When the wall finally does reach about waist high, Sanballat and Tobiah along with the Arabs and the people of the Philistine city of Ashtod to the south, decide this has gone far enough, and they plot to attack Jerusalem. Nehemiah is very concerned, especially since the people themselves are losing heart. He places guards at the most vulnerable places in the walls family by family. He encourages the people to remember that this is God's work, and from that day on, the families work in shifts. Half the men work on the walls with a weapon in one hand at all times, while the other half guard them. According to the ancient historian Josephus, men with trumpets are stationed every 500 feet so that if one section is attacked, the others can rush to their aid. Nehemiah himself patrols the wall constantly with a trumpeter at his side as well, ready to sound the alarm. It is a terribly tense time. And on top of all this, they are experiencing a famine. Of course they are. Those who are poor are being forced to sell their farms and houses and land to those who are richer. As the famine famine becomes more severe and labor is diverted to building the walls of Jerusalem, the situation gets desperate and the poorer Israelites begin selling their children and even themselves as slaves to the richer Israelite nobles. When Nehemiah hears of this, he is outraged and accuses the nobles and other rich Israelites of crimes against their own people. He says, we have just escaped from foreign slavery. Have we done this so that you, our own brothers, can take us into slavery yourselves? Shame on you. The rich Israelites hang their heads. Nehemiah tells them to immediately give back all houses, all land, and all property they've taken plus interest And when they promise to do so, Nehemiah stands and shakes out his robe saying, you better, may God shake you out like this should you fail to keep your promise. Meanwhile, Sanballat and Tobiah and their allies have not given up. They plot to take Nehemiah captive or worse, but to do so, they've got to lure him out of the city. So Sambalat sends a message to Nehemiah, asking him to meet in a village called Ono. Nehemiah refuses, knowing they mean to cause him harm. Sambalat sends the same message four times, and four times Nehemiah refuses. Finally, the fifth time. Sambalot sends an open message that anyone can read, saying, we have witnesses to prove you are building this wall as part of a plot to set yourself up as king in Jerusalem in rebellion to Artaxerxes. If you don't meet with us, this will get back to him. But Nehemiah responds, this is all lies and completely untrue. You have fabricated all of these accusations. And he prays, that God would strengthen his resolve even more. But there's an undercurrent of fear running through the people who are rebuilding the walls. One man even shuts himself up in his home out of fear and tries to convince Nehemiah to hide with him in the temple and bar the doors. But Nehemiah says, what kind of a leader would I be to run and hide? What kind of a leader tries to save his own life. I will not do it. And then Nehemiah realizes this man probably was a plant by Sanballat and Tobiah and the others to try to tempt him into an act of cowardice that would surely demoralize the people. Finally, after nearly two months of intense and dangerous work, the walls of the city are completed on October 2nd, 444 BCE. And it's only taken 52 days. The missive to King Artaxerxes and his response have not had time to be delivered. This is an obvious miracle, for eventually King Artaxerxes does write back saying, I read your letter and ordered a search of the archives and you are right. Jerusalem has been rebellious in the past. Or issue an order to stop work immediately until I order work to restart. (laughs) But by the time the missive is received, it's too late for the king to stop the walls from being rebuilt. They're already done. Well, this completely deflates Sanballat and the others. All except Tobiah, who is related to the Israelites by marriage and has deep ties in Jerusalem. Tobiah doggedly continues to oppose and threaten Nehemiah. You can see on this map that the new walls are very close in to the temple, barely enough to surround the temple and its courtyards, and to extend down to enclose two water sources, including the Pool of Siloam, at the far southern tip of the wall. It will be a long time before the city walls are expanded further. Because of the constant threat of attack, Nehemiah makes his brother Hanani commander over Jerusalem and tells him, don't open the gates until the sun is well up in the sky each day and make sure guards are always on duty. Remember Ezra? Well, he's still there. And now that both the temple and the walls are rebuilt, the people gather near the water gate. And ask Ezra to teach them from the book of the law of Moses. So Ezra stands on a little wooden platform, and as he opens the book of the law, everyone rises. Ezra says a prayer of praise, and the people fall to the ground saying, Amen, amen. And then Ezra, with the help of the Levites, reads the book of the law of Moses and explains it to everyone so they can understand it. And the people weep as the Holy Spirit moves their hearts. But Nehemiah stands up and says, Do not weep or grieve, for this day is holy to the Lord. It is a day of rejoicing, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is a remarkable statement of forgiveness and mercy, and it completely changes the tone of the day from one of accusation and guilt to one of rejoicing. The next day, the heads of each family and all the priests and Levites come back for more reading and study with Ezra, and they get to the part where the book of the Law of Moses talks about the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Booze, that big annual campout. out, remember that? And they realized that this is the time of year when the, that festival should be happening. So they all immediately go out and gather branches and build lean-tos and celebrate the festival for eight days. It says there had been no celebration like this since the days of Joshua when the Israelites first entered the promised land. Then a few days later, according to the law of Moses, they celebrate the day of atonement, a day of mourning and fasting. They confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors and spend the day reading from the book of the law of the Lord, worshiping God and remembering their history, remembering the evil done in and by Israel, and remembering God's utter faithfulness through it all. And they call out to their God to have mercy on them in their bondage to Persia. And at the end of the day, all of the people bind themselves with a vow and an oath to carefully follow all the commands of the Lord that they have learned from Ezra. They promise not to intermarry with the idol-worshiping people around them, nor to enter into trade on the Sabbath. They promised to bring all the tithes due to the Lord and to provide support of the temple and the priests and the Levites. And they promised to never again neglect the house of their God. At this point, the walls of Jerusalem have been rebuilt, but there's no houses inside the walls. Everyone still lives in their own homes and villages outside the city. The city needs to be populated. And a few families volunteer to move inside the walls and build homes, but it's still not enough. So the people cast lots, and one family in ten is selected to move into Jerusalem. Sometime after this, all the people gather to dedicate the walls of Jerusalem. Nehemiah assembles two large choirs, and all the people gather on top of the walls Nehemiah divides the people into columns with a choir heading each column. One column, led by Ezra, goes with the choir up the eastern side of the wall, singing the whole time, while the other column, led by their choir on top of the western wall, is followed by Nehemiah. I think it's very revealing that Ezra leads at the front of his column, while Nehemiah follows behind his column. I think Nehemiah may be the truer leader here. Nehemiah governs Judah and Jerusalem for 12 years, but then he's recalled by King Artaxerxes, and it is here that we will leave the story this week. We will finish the story of the Hebrew Bible next week. But for now, let's go back and look at the expulsion of the foreign wives and their children. That part doesn't land easily on the heart, and it seems to be applied in harsh ways in churches today when anyone seems other or foreign to a particular church's governing body. And we we need to give this some deeper thought. Um, If you printed your um, uh, study guide any time earlier than about 30 minutes ago, (laughs) um, I added a little um, blurb at the bottom, just to clarify that what we're trying to get at in our discussion is not so much what was done in these ancient cultures to guard against falling away from Yahweh, but what should we do now in our own lives? Is there there an, an important gift underneath? this wrapping paper.
1: All right.
0: Yay. Turn your mics on and let's continue the discussion. What did y'all, what were y'all talking about?
2: We talked about how in modern times, when, when there's a marriage that we, a term is called unequally yoked, And whether, uh, whether or not that's okay, you know, or, or even you know, marrying outside of your faith, Sometimes it's, you know, like when Marty's brother got married, um, him being Catholic and his wife being Methodist, um, his mother was concerned about that. Um, my bro- and others, other times we've seen, seen things like that, or even more drastically, if you're, just, you're a Christ follower and your spouse is completely not and, and rebe- in rebellion, how does that work in a marriage? And what do we do about that nowadays? So I think that's part of what we were looking at, and, and then we also thought it was very interesting that, um, or I did, that King Solomon had so many wives, and some of them were um, idol worshippers, and those the rules did not apply to the king, <laughs> or he didn't <laughs> well, think they did.
0: They should have. <laughs> I think they did, and he ignored them. Right? Yes. Right. He didn't yeah. care. <laughs> And I think that this is also complicated um, in, in trying to bring this forward into modern times by the whole idea of othering people within our faith community. Um, I, I know that that um, you know, a modern equivalent would be uh, people saying, well, if you're, if you're LGBTQ, you can't be Christian therefore you're cut off you know um and we have lived through that kind of thing this is the kind of gut-wrenching family tearing apart sort of situation that these people are facing and i'm just wondering how do we land with this how so so instead of instead of
3: throwing the quote unquote other group out i mean shouldn't there be some some teach, well, love and teaching and education and acceptance
4: and that sort of thing. Well, they all try that.
3: We call it conversion therapy, and it doesn't work. <laughs> um, just saying.
0: <laughs> well, and that brings up a good point. I think that what Woody is talking about is something that's mutual, where you're learning from each other, um, where you're sitting in respect and. Um, And what Shirley is pointing out that very often how that translates in some communities is we take the other and try to force them into what will fit into our community. Right.
2: Right. Well, we talked in our group and 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 Woody was talking about this, that at that time, instead of sending the, the wives and children away, couldn't that couldn't the the father of the household teach them about the one true God and and I have friends that have been um, in marriages like that and they really wanted to teach their spouse about about Jesus and hoped to get to that point. sometimes it's successful and sometimes it's not I'm not talking about about conversion therapy I'm just talking about trying to get your your spouse to know the love of Christ right Um, right Marlene
5: Well, in our group, um, Shirley especially, I think, brought up the fact that one of the parts of the story in Ezra was that they looked at each household on a case-by-case basis, and we were wondering if there was an opportunity for the wives to say – okay, I will reject my idols. I will choose to follow Yahweh. And in those cases, those wives were not sent away. It was the women who dug their heels in and said, no, that were sent away. And that also, I can't remember if it was Shirley or Ellen, who said that historically um, in that time, the mothers had the primary influence over the, the raising of the children up to the age of seven, and that if the mothers were, were, you know, refusing to switch from their idols, that that would then influence the children. Um, and so um, that would then play into the process. And that would then sort of dovetail with what Woody was saying about this education and this opportunity to to come to some kind of a common decision if this was done indeed in that way. I mean, it does say that it was done on a case-by-case basis.
0: Yeah, there's definitely something to be said for doing on a case-by-case basis. Julia? I'm going to
4: play devil's advocate here. How would we feel if there were another religion and we were the ones that were considered the idol worshipers and we needed to be converted to that new religion. How would we feel? Would we dig our heels in and say, no, I am saved and I will worship Christ or I will worship God? Or would we, at gunpoint even, denounce him? You know, what would we do? I uh, just, because, Faith is a very subjective thing. And how people, there's religion, but then there's faith. And then how people express their faith is, tends to be through religion. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Or I think that's at-
6: a super, a super um, observation in, in suggesting, let's turn the tables here and think
1: about it that way. I, I appreciate that. Well, I think too, <clears throat> excuse my voice, but I'm wondering if when Ezra was having the individual basis of the families, you know, of looking at families, if it wasn't a little bit more of, can we look at values and principles here so much instead of worshiping idols or turning towards Yahweh? Could it be that he was, or I'm hope I'm hoping that the gift under the wrapping is that, we are all in a unique journey spiritually. So there's no way that all those families would have to, I I don't think it's realistic for them to say, okay, yeah, I'm going to turn. Or the consequences, I'm not going to be with my family. Maybe there were some people, but even if there were people who were worshiping idols, I can't help but wonder, like, maybe they didn't know any better. Maybe they were, they had been taught a certain way. So I'm, I'm hopeful that Ezra in that moment was able to see people's humility, people's commitment, um, love, uh, like greater values than just worshiping a, an idol so that then maybe he saw some, some gifts that could give people the opportunity to turn towards Yahweh, maybe not instantly, but surrounded by him teaching the word and him, reminding people where they came from that maybe their heart, like that God could pursue them where they were at. I don't know if I'm making sense, but I
0: I understand. Um, I think that, um, I think that you're getting down into the part where we need to figure out where we would stand, you know, how would we protect ourselves, you know, because clearly there is evil in the world. Clearly, um uh, it's what its face looks like is harder to define right um and we had talked at at in in a past class recently about how different would it be if if european christians had gone into the new americas think expecting to find god there you know um among the people um, and, and I, I, think that we have been steeped in this idol versus Yahweh language and that there's something more to it than that. Um, we've seen the fruit of the idol versus Yahweh language as it's been applied in the world and that fruit is not good. Um, and, and I also think that just to throw this out there, I think that the case by case basis was a Most my guess, this is just purely my guess, is that it was a way of making sure they were not throwing the wives and children out to starve, that they figured out some economic solution.
6: Well, so I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, I actually kind of wondered how much privilege was involved and who got to stay and who had to go. Um, But I also was thinking about the starvation if their concern was about whether or not these women and children were, were would starve, then everybody would stay.
4: Mm-hmm. And the
6: problem, what's problematic here to me is that they were turning the women and children out to potentially starve, certainly to live a very difficult life. Yeah, my
0: impression of. My reading between the lines of this story is that there are Canaanites all in this country. I mean, all over Judah. There are people who worship idols who are not Israelites all over this country. And that what was happening here was, was removing the women and children from the Israelite home while still providing for them within the community is my We're, guess. You can, you can read provision for them in this story? I can that's what I think the case by case meant. I so think that they had like, to be. I think they had to divorce these wives, but I think the case by case and the reason the people were pushing back and when they were standing in the rain was we can't just like throw them out in the streets. You know, we need to go through this and figure out how we're get, we're going to do it. But we need to figure out how to do this. It seems like there's an
4: interesting assumption here that I I hadn't really focused on, and that is. The assumption is that if you've got an idol-worshipping spouse, you're going to become idol-worshipping also. Exactly.
6: Uh, that was always the fear in, 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 in my generation was that the, 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 there would be a loser and you, the one you loved would be the loser. So if a parent had a child go into a mixed marriage, that their faith would be lost. Mm -hmm. I I was,
0: when I was, when I married a Catholic, the first, my first husband was Catholic. My parents told me if I did that, I would lose my heritage in the Lord.
4: Mm -hmm. Also
7: fascinating that it's, it's, we keep saying idol worshiping spouse, yet all we're talking about is idol worshiping women, you know, Mm -hmm. so back to like looking at the Solomon one, it says yet King Solomon ignored that warning. And he was led indeed led into idolatry. I just think it's really interesting that the women are dragging all these godly men, allegedly. allegedly <laughs> godly, godly, men. You know, and so the women need to be kicked out because these men were just so godly and we were just, you know, the women were so good. I <laughs> think like, their names. Their names but were
4: I mean, all Eve.
7: Yes. <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> and when the answer was the- me. Of a, it, it's exact, it is a repeat of a trope, right? That we find yeah. over and over in patriarchal literature. So um, the, so let's shift gears
7: here to now, how. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, this is Joe. And oh, i sorry, I can't see you all today. So I think one thing that I've truly taken away from this Bible study is how we have been raised in this fire brimstone fear thing and so now my gravitation is flip the story and you know I can't say in the past but when we were talked about bringing this into the modern I'm going to say that even if two people are married and don't love each other that generally there's love for the kids and I think that in all of this we have kind of tossed out the love in our in this discussion. And I know that there have been times in our lives where we have not been the leaders as parents that we should have been for our kids. And it's usually some kind of come to Jesus moment that reminds us to step up our game. And maybe, you know, maybe I'm being too simplified about this, but what if this is the hey guys, step up your game philosophy? I know. When I got married my father in law was furious because i wouldn 't get married in the Catholic Church, and I was denying four hundred years of Catholic, of Macnroe Catholic, although rob couldn 't even get married in the Catholic Church because he was never confirmed, so there's just so much hypocrisy but and he went to church with me but I think that case by case is are you trying to realize that you're are you facing now the ability to realize what you're doing and try to do better?
0: Mm -hmm. I don't know. I I think that Jesus as Christians, we, and we have permission to step back from this black and white binary kind of, of approach that Jesus gave us a different criteria yeah love one another jesus said love god with all your heart love mm-hmm. each other love yourself and pay attention to the fruit of your decisions <laughs> you know yeah we
5: we talked about that in in our group was that um that jesus was the disruptor um and that it seems like so often in many churches, um, there is a hearkening back to the ancient law of Israel over the teachings of Jesus. And, um, and that somewhere in the middle of all of this, what Paul said about we are no longer under the law gets lost, and rather than thinking creatively of how can we nurture um, and enforce the, the community of our church following the teachings of Jesus, it's easier to be controlling and to go back to the law.
0: Right. It's, it's, it takes a lot more humility to apply Jesus' teaching than it does to apply the old law of Moses, right?
3: so how do you ask the question about current church discipline situations and um i don't know if we ever really agreed on anything as far as like i think there was there was a specific situation with the idol worship that they were dealing with but most church discipline today is not Loving it's not concerned for the person they're disciplining at all. Um, it doesn't lead to anything positive in the life of the person they're disciplining. What comparison are we supposed to make because so
0: here's so here's where the scenario that I would set up. What I would suggest is that we think about this from a pastor's point of view. Put your pastor hat on, okay? And you have someone in the church who is harming people in the church, who is causing them confusion, who is telling lies about God. All right. Um, what do you do? What? What? How? What should be the approach? what is the loving approach to that person and that community
5: well it seems see, like I'm that should also this, apply to pastors too yes I'm looking at this specifically
3: that. in the lives of lgbtq people and i'm like these pastors have been indoctrinated Yes. And I'm not speaking yeah. to that
0: so much as where should we go? I mean, I think th- that path of casting out your LGBTQ brothers and sisters and doing the whole conversion therapy thing and the, and they're all thinking they're doing the right thing. I think that's clearly wrong. Would you agree? Yes, absolutely. That's where my head... You know, so I'm I don't want to... I want to just acknowledge that. What I want us to do is focus on what is... Where do we find God in a situation where someone actually is hurting a community that is seeking God, where we actually have someone in the community who is harming the community and is telling lies about God?
4: Thank you. Would with counseling that person and having a, pretty difficult conversation with them, giving them an opportunity to change what's going on. And if that doesn't happen, then I think you're in a situation where you need to sever your relationship. But because you will harm the rest of the congregation and turn people away, and have people lose their faith. And that's concerning.
5: Wasn't that what Paul was addressing in what many churches see as the guidelines for church discipline today? He was addressing a specific situation in a specific congregation where someone was harming the community. And refusing to change their behavior. But it seems like so many churches. Have taken a really broad interpretation. Of what is harming the community. And what is failing to comply. What do you need to do to comply. And, um, and I think that's where churches. Go off the rails. In I think, this.
0: I think we need to be. We need to tread in this space with fear and trembling. With a great deal of humility ourselves. But firmly, there are situations where people are harming other folks. And, and you have to take action. And I think that what I'm trying to do is get to the pee under the mattress, the gift under the wrapping paper. That is the bottom line of what idolatry was. It was harming it was harming people's relationship with god by saying this is a god you know this is a god and then ending up not being god you know that there was clearly further on steps and implications and fruit to that right i heard but that makes me think shouldn't
4: the hierarchy have addressed it rather than just severing out the low man on totem pole, women and children, shouldn't it have been handled at a higher level? So it was these two guys,
6: right? One guy has an idea, and I don't remember if it was Ezra or Nehemiah, says, oh, that sounds like a great idea. Let's go. And then people stood up and said, hang on here, misters. Um, you can't just throw everybody out. So there was not a process of discernment. It was not done from a legitimate, um, with love as the legitimate starting point. And um, so, so I'll just, I, I think, stop there. That, that's what was missing from
5: their start. It almost seems like this was the beginning of what you see in Jewish synagogues and and culture today where there is arguing and there is discussing and there is coming together with multiple perspectives and you know hashing it out together trying to come to the truth and that this is what we're seeing in this story.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that Jesus' model is healthy. Yes, Martha. Anne and I do need to go. Um, So
6: thank you all. It was good to see you all. Good to see you,
7: Anne.
1: Good to see (laughs) you. Bye. 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 I have a question because, I mean, ultimately, we can go back and forth. People are going to have different opinions of what harming the church is, right? And it's all rooted in fear. And so... If God is our relentless pursuer, he, he's even all these people that you highlighted, they, they did worship idols and yet they're people of faith. So I I do agree with you. I don't think it's an either or situation, but I am having a hard time knowing it goes back to, you keep saying, what are the fruits, you know, and, and. If someone is harming the church, what are those bad fruits? Because harm is always um, people's opinion. Some people are like, I'm not harming this. It's my belief. And others are like, no, your belief is harming me. So so here's here's a distinction.
0: All right. Um, I think that um, what Christians are called to do is to face God, to dwell with God, to listen to the Holy Spirit, to treat each other with love, whose foundation is respect, right? <laughs> respect is like the first step in that little little uh, relational ladder. Um, and that we also need to allow each other the freedom to relate to God, in our own paths and in our own journeys and that God's relationship with one person may not look what God, like what God's relationship with is with another person. All of that I would say is healthy and not hurting each other. If I have someone in a congregation who is going from person to person and gossiping and telling lies about one person to another person and creating Division and concern and tearing the fabric of the community—that is a bad fruit. <laughs> that is not—I cannot let that continue, as a pastor. It has and nothing to do. I, it has nothing to do with
3: the, their Nicene Creed or whatever. You see the difference? That's what the point I was trying to get at, and. um is that most church discipline that we see today isn't that exactly,
0: and so I'm just wanting us to think about this in okay. with these lenses on, okay, so Gail, what do you do as a pastor um so i would I, I would never address that person in a public way ever because I would not want to be addressed. In a public way, if I was doing something that was hurting the community, I would want to be treated with gentleness and respect and love and given time to first hear what I'm doing wrong and then given time to think about it. I don't want to hear it and get an ultimatum at the same time. Right. So everything that's guiding me is how would I want to be treated if I was them? and i go at it that way so i would go at it as a pastor privately with them i would try to help them understand i would first i would name what is happening an example i would have examples for them so that it's not just like this nebulous stuff you know i'd have examples and i would say we would talk about okay what what were you thinking <laughs> What was in your head when this happens is, and then we might take many different paths from that. Is this something that you fought all your life? Is this something that you're trying to change? Do you see harm coming from it? That kind of thing, Uh, you know, I would try to find out where they are because this could be something they're fighting hard not to do. And they simply need someone to come alongside them, you know? They may need counseling. I would, So so the initial discussion is around where they are, what they're thinking, what their heart is, and what resources we might be able to bring to bear to help them. It is very rare that I find that someone is being malicious intentionally.
7: Okay. Sure. So what I hear you saying, though, is I that you it. approach this with love, though. hmm And that's, that's what I'm saying. And, and so let me very quickly tell you, my very first pastor was kicked out of the church because he was an alcoholic. He wasn't given any help that really wounded me. I was like 16. He was replaced with a pastor who just was super charismatic and ended up having affairs in Mexico and using the church's money to get down there. So he was ousted and it divided the church. Then we move. And my next pastor, Is kissing the young girls in the hot tub is friends' house because they're all alcoholics. And when it's brought to light, nobody wants to face it because the group that is kind of quote unquote in power at the church are alcoholics with them. And in every single case where I see harm, I also see that the church in return harmed the pastor. Yes.
0: So that's exactly what I'm trying to say. And so this first thing, there's this first tranche. That is so important in setting the tone for where we're moving from there, right? And then after a period of time, if nothing is helping and we do not have the resources in our community and or that person is unwilling to bring the resources to bear to change the situation, then it is so much easier to have the conversation with them to say, you're going to need to move to another community that can give you more help than we can. The parting can be one of mutual respect where they have been seen and loved through the process. Sometimes people aren't able to hear at all. And you have to be very clear. You cannot come back here, (laughs) you know, Sometimes it has to be that direct, but you get to that point from a path of love and respect all the while protecting the people who have been harmed by this person's behavior. You know, does, does this make sense?
5: I think I, yeah, I think that, that part of the, question that comes up in a lot of churches is that pastors are often treated differently than lower status members of the congregation. And a lot of it, I think, depends on what is the the um, the governing structure of the congregation. Is the pastor the all-powerful one who sets the tone, policy, discipline, Everything for the church. That's and he not healthy in any
0: organization. That's, a, right. that's not healthy, period, full stop.
5: No, it's not. But many churches, you know, and the pastor has control of the money too. You know, I mean, um, and in that case, I would imagine the congregation is very careful to confront a pastor who is harming the congregation. Uh, where you have a a stronger structure, like, you know, th- coming from the Presbyterian church, the pastor is not the head of the church. Yes. The session, the governing body of elders are the ones who make the decisions, not only about the church, but about the pastor. Yes. Um, and. You know, other denominations handle it differently. But still, I think there is a tendency in most congregations to treat the pastor differently. Than to you allow treat them more the leeway
0: people. in this kind of stuff. To make
5: excuses or To more the rise states, and
0: fall of Mars Hill, you kind of get a picture of that. Right? Oh,
5: yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was right in our backyard. Mark Driscoll's yeah. Mars Hill Church was here in Seattle. And so we we saw this in the local paper. Yeah. Um, it was horrible. Um but, um,
0: but it's fair. Yeah. I think I think that it's very important that we work in many ways to flatten hierarchies within the Christian community, wherever we find them. Um, I think there's a lot to be said for the church collectively being able to do something. You know, and that we need an organizational structure if we're doing something collectively as a big church you know in 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 america or something but but generally speaking i think um it's it's best if the pastor is not above everybody else if even the elders don't see themselves as above everybody else if this is a uh, where we in in my little church where we've got we had a disagreement over the last two days about hand, how to handle a situation, um, with a tenant. And, and I, you know, and I talked to the tenant and I said, you know, we've got folks that think this and folks that think this, and here's why. And, you know, I want to understand what your concerns are so we can kind of, maybe there's a third way, but I told him that, you know, we don't move forward until we all agree. We don't pressure each other into agreeing, we just don't move forward until we've, we're all comfortable with this. I think yes. that that's the way of real relationship. That's how a marriage should work, right? I think our Christian churches are ex, are in a, an extension of that model. That's so Yeah, crazy. we've always othered, and it's rooted in this story that um, we are reading today.
4: That's what I thought
0: yeah and so we need to understand how jesus changed that because i think that jesus did change this part of the story this is an important part of why jesus needed to come and explain this to us so um i i want to uh leave it there um so that i can be sure to be able to download this file <laughs> pretty big <laughs>
5: And I love y'all.
0: We'll see you. And next week will be the final week for the Hebrew Bible. Woo!
5: Wow. All
0: right. We'll see you. See you later. Thank you,
5: Gail. Bye-bye.
0: Bye.